I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest is Lama Paulden Drolma. She's a student of Kala Rinpoche, and she's one of the first Western women to become a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She's also a licensed psychotherapist, facilitating clients with psychospiritual integration and development through the understanding and methods from Buddhism and psychology. And she's the author of this new book, Love on Every Breath. Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. A pleasure. So you're a part of two Tibetan Buddhist lineages. I'm familiar with the Kagyus. I took refuge mm. and received the Chenrezig empowerment from Kala Rinpoche many years ago. Wonderful. And this book, Love on Every Breath, is about a meditation from your other lineage. Tell us about that lineage and where this meditation came from. Yes, well, both of them I received from Kala Rinpoche primarily, also from other teachers as well. So he was very important in the Kagyu lineage, but he was the primary holder of the Shampa lineage, which traced back to this fellow, a Tibetan Shumpa Naljor in 11th century, went to India and purportedly studied with 150 gurus, all the top Buddhist gurus of the day in India. But the two primary teachers that he studied with and received most all the teachings that we have today from were two women 
who we don't know if they knew each other, but probably they did, but they led their separate lives. But they were both from Kashmir, Naguma, and Sukha City. And this meditation is said to be from Naguma, and it's been passed down orally for the last thousand years. And this is the first time that I know of or that we know of where it's been fully written down in print. And so I learned this from Kala Limshay back in Darjeeling in the late 70s in India. And then I practiced it in three-year retreat in the uh, early 80s extensively. Of all the teachings to write about and share with the world, why did you choose this one? Ah, such a good question. Really, I was spurred to write this book after our last national election, and because it really works with opening the heart and learning to love ourselves and also learning to love all beings and to be able to see the equality, the the beauty, the, you know, true nature, in a sense, of all human beings and to be able to honor and respect and love eventually, be able to extend our compassion and loving kindness to all beings. So I'm also curious about your childhood spiritual experience. Which one that I talk about in the beginning of the book? Well, actually, you could tell us about, you know, whatever significant spiritual experience you had as a child and growing up. Yeah, well, tell you about another experience. I somehow had this strong thought in my mind as a child. Like, I remember at age two, my mother told me, actually, that we lived at that point in Menlo Park, which is in San Francisco Bay Area, and we lived like a block away from the train station, and she told me twice I ran away to the train station, and I only remember one of these times, But I remember my mother talking to me, and I remember what I was thinking, why I was running away at age, you know, two and a half, was that I felt guilty about that I hadn't started my work yet. And I remember thinking, I didn't even really know what my work was, but I remember thinking, well, I don't know everything, but I know the basics. And I felt such urgency to do my work for humanity and Again, I was two. I I didn't even know what I was doing. But I remember my mother very kindly somehow being able to communicate to me that it was okay that I stay home longer. And she didn't squash my spirit. And I remember this conversation, uh, not word for word, but the gist of it, that we had at the train station. And then the next year, I became quite despondent. And I think about this same issue. And I had a dream, so I was three by this time, and I don't know, some people find it hard to believe that I can remember this stuff, but, you know, I've just remembered it all my life since childhood. And I had a dream, and in the dream, two Arab men came to me, and I knew somehow that they were like spiritual uncles, and they came on a flying carpet, and they took me for a ride on this carpet to talk to me, and we flew above the town, and we just went flying. And they said to me, do you remember why you came here? And I said, oh, oh, it kind of triggers something. And again, I don't remember what I was thinking, but I just remember, oh, yeah. And they said, don't worry. 
by the time you're in your late teens, you'll start meeting your spiritual friends, and then in your 20s, you will meet your teacher. And this relieved my mind somehow, and I remember my mom told me that I really wasn't eating very much, and she was quite worried about me, and I remember waking up the next morning and remembering this dream and thinking, okay, I'm going to eat. And I went down to the kitchen and got something to eat, and I felt renewed from that. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. In my late teens, I started meeting people that I felt like were spiritual friends. And then in my 20s, I met the now deceased Colorin Pache, who was my guru, is my guru. So that's a little bit of my story from childhood. That's such a wonderful story. I love that, and I'm so glad I asked about that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening and appreciating. The other story you told about your early childhood spiritual experience struck me because of the way you felt that it really fit with your later experience with Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So should I tell about that story? Sure. So I talk about this in the book because it came up spontaneously in me, and I think it's very much in the spirit of the meditation in love on every breath and embodies that spirit and that possibility of the practice. So I was at my best friend's house across the street, and I was seven, and her brother was 15. And one afternoon, we were in his room, and he asked us to pull down our pants. And I didn't know anything. I was so innocent, so I I did it. And then he put his hand on my vulva, and instantly I recoiled and pulled up my pants and ran out of the room and ran home. But after that, I felt somehow damaged or sullied. I could still feel the touch of his hand, you know, for a really long time after. Even though he hadn't done anything, he just put his hand there, but it felt like I was somehow damaged or soiled or something. And so I decided, because I was raised a Christian in the Episcopal Church and had heard about Jesus loving us and healing us, I decided to call on Jesus So every night before I went to sleep, once I was in bed, and I never told anyone about this actually until I was writing the book proposal, but every night I would call on Jesus and then I would imagine him there. It was all like a body of light and he would put his hand on the top of my head and then light would stream down blessing light from him into me and all through my body. And I would feel like I was being purified and healed. So I did that every night for a long time, what seemed in my child mind like about a year, but I have no idea how long it really was. It was quite some time, so I did that every night, and then all of a sudden, the whole feeling of being soiled or damaged was gone, and I felt completely back to myself and you know, really good in myself and my body. I felt healed and purified from that experience. And so I thanked Jesus very much. And, you know, that was it. So this is the power of calling on an awakened being. That's how, from a Buddhist point of view, we think of Jesus as an awakened being. Or we could say, from a Christian point of view, you know, a divine being, son of God. But Whatever religion we are, or if we're no religion, we're not religious at all, 
you know, we could call upon the spirit of healing or something, or we can call upon someone from our own tradition. In Tibetan Buddhism, we call upon, in the Love on Every Breath, on Chen Rezi, the Bodhisattva of Compassion that you're familiar with. So in whatever way is appropriate, we can call on one of these awakened beings or divine beings and really request their blessing and purification and healing. And it can have a very powerful effect on us. And we can also become vessels of this loving kindness and wisdom. And in the practice, that's what happens so that we can take in others' suffering and have it be instantly transformed in our heart and sent out then as healing, as awakened blessing and love and like healing energy. I was going to ask about this later, but since you mentioned it, I would love for you to talk more about how awakened beings, after they leave this world, they don't really leave, do they? No. And this is something that I talk about in the book because from a Western point of view, you know, some people believe, let's just take Buddha as example, some people, you know, believe in the West that there was this person, Shakyamuni Buddha, and he did attain awakening, full enlightenment. And within other traditions, there's teachings that certain beings reached a very high level of spiritual awakening or attainment or union with God, however that is put in the tradition. And from a Western materialistic scientific worldview, there's this unconscious assumption that after these beings awaken, they're gone. They're just gone. And we don't think in our culture, and again, we haven't really examined these beliefs or these assumptions, but people just assume that Buddha is gone somewhere, you know. And the actual definition and fact of awakening from a Buddhist point of view, and I think this is true in other traditions as well, but within Buddhism, a Buddha is liberated beyond time and space. Their mind is fully awakened, which doesn't mean that you dissolve or disappear or die. It means that your love, your wisdom is completely unfettered. It's completely blossomed from within inside yourself. And time and space are not a problem. And from that point of view of awakened presence, the Wisdom and love is always going out to sentient beings. It's always available there, radiating, you know, love and compassion, radiating this wisdom love. And many of my teachers use an example that the Buddhas are always reaching out to us, you know, like a hook. But if we don't also reach out toward them, then no connection happens. And one of the modern lamas used the metaphor of like the Buddhas are calling us up on the phone or texting us, but if we don't reply, no connection happens. So they're reaching out to us with their awakened love, and then if we open to them and reach out to them, a connection can be made, and transmission and blessing can happen. So I talk about this just so people can look at these unexamined assumptions that we have and open to the possibility that there are awakened beings who are ever-present beyond time and space, 
who want to actually make a connection and, and help us, you know, to come farther along on our spiritual journey and come to peace and happiness. So before getting into what Tongling meditation is, I'd love for you to clarify what the Buddha had to say about suffering, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that notion of suffering, that life is suffering, and such things like that. Yeah, well, from my understanding, the Buddha said that unenlightened life is suffering, because in our state of ignorance, and this is, you know, how he framed it, that we're ignorant of our true nature. We're ignorant of the true nature of reality. And in this ignorance, we take ourself to be a separate self. And we split off ourself from everything else that is. So we have self and we have other. And this is how we create duality. And then we want to get everything that is beneficial for the self and get rid of everything that isn't desirable for the self. So out of this ignorance, we're constantly involved in grasping and pushing away. And this is what he said is the process of suffering, because in actuality, things don't exist the way we think they do. And none of this constant grasping or pushing away actually leads us to fulfillment, to happiness, to peace, to having what we want and need. It's an endless process that is never fulfilling and never is going to work. And a modern-day example of this is people that work very hard to make a lot of money and maybe, you know, through their own efforts and being at the right place in the right time, they end up making huge amounts of money. And then they find when they have all this money and they have all this success with their work that it hasn't really fulfilled them, actually. It hasn't brought them peace. It hasn't brought them real happiness. And so this is what the Buddha was talking about. And it's also the endlessness of this process. It's very frustrating. And so this is how he talked about the suffering of our lives and how there's a path to find our way out of this to actually come to true happiness and peace. And in what you said, there's another element of failure to examine our motive and our understanding of what we're seeking. Because when, mm-hmm. when we're seeking money or, or anything in this outer world, and if we're not clear about what our deepest motivation for that seeking or that ambition then we can get totally lost in the outermost manifestation of what we're seeking. And then even if we attain it, we often find, almost always find, that it didn't give us what we most deeply were seeking from it. Right, right. You're making such an important point. And I personally feel, and I've seen this in my work with myself and others over the years, that at the bottom, like say, for example... We want a new house, and we're really bent on this house that we're really trying to get. Like you were saying, anything in the material world, but just taking the house as example. Okay, so on the outer level, we want that house. Underneath, there's unexamined wishes, usually that we're not fully conscious of, that what we actually want is a space that feels safe, that feels open, just as an example, that feels spacious, 
that feels beautiful and that is a good environment for us and that will, underneath that, that will actually bring us again to a place of happiness or fulfillment or joy or peace or whatever. So under the material wish is actually a wish for a quality or experience or a capacity to rest in a pure quality and be in that quality. And that's really what we're longing for. But we haven't, like you said, examined really deeply our own wishes and motivations. So we think it's actually a house. But underneath, there's always something very pure we're longing for at the very bottom of our desire. But that needs to be researched inside ourselves so that then if we really realize, okay, what I'm really wanting is more beauty in my life or more spaciousness or more clarity or more peace or whatever it is, then we can see, is that really going to be the best way to go about that? And, you know, maybe that is part of it. Maybe, you know, we're going to work on coming to more clarity and spaciousness in our spiritual practice. And maybe this house will be a helpful adjunct, you know, or a helpful support for our life. And so I'm not saying not to, you know, go after material things when it's beneficial, but to realize what is really our deeper longing and the purity in that and to then, like you were saying, we can examine it all and make conscious choices. And another classic example would be with love. When we enter or seek a romantic relationship, hoping that the other person will see us and love us for who we are. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And You know, I think that's a very basic human need to be mirrored and seen for who we are and loved as we are. And ultimately, we need to learn to love ourselves. And from the point of view of our innate, ever-present, pure awareness, in love on every breath, we learn to bring that awareness and its inherent loving kindness and compassion to our human self to actually see and love and develop compassion for ourselves as a human being. So ultimately, it's our awareness itself that sees us and sees our inherent goodness, our basic fundamental, what is called in Buddhism, Buddha nature, awake nature, the ever-present awake pure nature that is in each and every one of us. So ultimately, it's ourselves that sees that in ourselves and recognizes that in spite of our human foibles are, you know, we're not perfect, but we're still worthy of love and lovable and we can extend that love to ourselves. And one of the great Tibetan teachers, maybe you've heard of him, uh, Dingo Kinsu Rinpoche, the great Dzogchen master of the 20th century, great friend of Kala Rinpoche, said that each of us is the center of our own mandala. And so extrapolating on that, if we're the center of our own mandala, our experience is centered in this experience of self, And so right in the heart of our experience 
in the heart of our entire lives, our, the mandala of our lives, that's where we need to also bring loving kindness and compassion. So the love on every breath practice starts with bringing compassion and kindness to the self. If you're just joining us, my guest is Lama Paul Dendrolma, and she's the author of this book we've been talking about, Love on Every Breath, Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. One of the things that I discovered a while back was that I can get there a bit indirectly by giving that love, by sending that love out. And that began around 30 years ago. I heard this saying that in order to get what you need, give of what you have. And that saying struck me in a very, very powerful way. But I couldn't really get you know, the direct realization of what that really meant. And about 15 years ago, I realized that I could put that into practice directly when I felt like I needed something, that I could actually give that which I thought I needed. And as I started to do that and put that into practice, immediately I started feeling the fruit of that. And it was so powerful and so simple. That is so beautiful, Tonya. Thank you for sharing that. That is, that's really amazing. And I think your point is very well taken. I find in teaching this meditation over the years to students that the self-love is the hardest, most challenging part of it. And as you said, there's a lot of ideas of sin and that there's something fundamentally wrong about with us or we fundamentally made a bad mistake at some point a long time ago. There's some flaw inherent in our being. This idea is very deep in the collective unconscious of our culture. And this feeling of being insufficient or not enough or not really good or something like that. So I think it's a good point where you're saying that oftentimes we can access loving kindness and compassion easier for others and in that, we can feel that in our hearts and then, you know, bring that quality to ourselves as well. And what you're saying is even, you know, another step in the sense of as you give to others, you are filled with that quality of love. And then you are receiving it because you're filling with it as you're giving it out. And so in the Love on Every Breath, traditionally, you start with yourself and Sometimes, you know, this practice is very adaptable and sometimes people might want to do what you're suggesting and start with somebody. In fact, I often teach it this way, start with somebody you really love where it's easy to generate compassion and loving kindness and then for the people that are very difficult, do them much later after you're adept in the practice and one might do that for a while before then bringing the practice to oneself. But eventually it's very important to really learn to bring loving kindness to ourselves and to work through the psychological issues and realize that those are not really true. There's nothing wrong with this actually at the core of who we are. And this is a difference in Buddhism to some of the other traditions. The Buddhism says that at the core of who we truly are, we're pure, pristine, 
wisdom, love. And this is actually our innate nature. This is at the core of who we are. And the path is to uncover that and allow it to blossom. I recently heard a Christian speaking about the concept of sin, and I liked the way they described it. They characterized it as the experience of getting lost in duality. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that the, all that sin was was forgetting our true nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that sort of helped to unload some of the baggage from that term, although I think our society is still lost in a very negative perspective of that concept of sin. Yeah, and self-loathing still quite predominant. Yes. I've heard that, I can't speak definitively on this, but that the word sin, if it's traced back etymologically, that it does mean separation. So Mm -hmm. I've heard that and explained in the way that you were saying this person explains sin, that there is some, you know, evidence of that in the word itself meaning separation, so that there's that separation from true nature, from God, as they sometimes put it. Yes, and they actually mentioned the same etymological origin as you just mentioned. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's not the way it's been taught a lot. I think that's a more sophisticated, but a lot of times the way it was taught was just like, you're innately bad and you have to be saved by Jesus, you know, and if you're not, you know, you're going to go to hell. So I think that is at the core of this feeling of I'm no good. And I do think it's very beneficial for people to hear and understand a deeper explanation of what this is really about. And in the book, you write that it's human nature to seek distinctions, but that reality is non-dual. Could you clarify what non-duality is? Because non-duality is is kind of becoming the rage these days. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so from a Buddhist point of view, it's very simple. Non-duality is when the experience and understanding of subject-object duality is no longer present. So from a Buddhist point of view, we've taken the fact that we have a body, we have form, we have feelings, instincts, thoughts, consciousness, perceptions, etc. We've taken this to be a self. And it's called skandhas or aggregates. It's like all these different elements of our experience we lump together and take it to be a self. And then, we, like I was saying before, everything else is other. And this is the fundamental dualism from a Buddhist point of view, this separation of subject and object, myself as the subject and everything else as the object, self and other. And so understanding that fundamentally... There is no self or other, and there actually is no separation, is, you know, part of the profound wisdom and understanding that occurs on the Buddhist path and, of course, in other paths as well. And that's a very... Does that make sense? It makes total sense to me, but it's a very difficult concept for Westerners who are steeped and educated and brought up in a materialistic perspective of the world. Yes, 
Yes, and that's where the teachings on shunyata or emptiness come in in Buddhism. Well, since you mentioned that, that's a wonderful kind of paradoxical thing that we could talk about, that notion of emptiness and fullness that is so easy to get confused about. Right, and people hearing the teachings on emptiness, and this isn't just Westerners, there's warnings about this in texts going back thousands of years, but people often hear the teachings on emptiness and equate it with some sort of nihilism, like nothing exists because, of course, in the Heart Sutra it says that things don't actually exist. What this is talking about is things don't exist the way we normally think they do or take them to, and that through the development of our discerning intelligence, we can examine with um, developed concentration that happens in meditation practice, we can examine the nature of self, the nature of reality, and actually come to see and experience what these Buddhist masters have been talking about for the last 2,500 years, that things are lacking this inherent self-nature. They don't exist in the way we think they do. They're not actually independent, stable objects. And from a Buddhist point of view, everything is awareness, emptiness, appearance, emptiness. And that's the fullness. There's all this amazing manifestation and presence and awareness that's everywhere, unhindered and unfettered. And so it seems to appear, but it doesn't fundamentally exist. And yet it doesn't not exist either. And Nagarjuna, a great 2nd century A.D. Buddhist philosopher, said that the reality is beyond existing or non-existing or the two of them together or neither of them. So this is called beyond extremes of one thing or another and is why it is said that the actual reality needs to be realized through meditation It can't be understood through the intellect because it's not based on polarities and it's a direct experience into the nature of self and reality. And all those manifestations and perspectives of duality and the world as we think it is are all emerging through the filter of the ego and all of the conditioning that has gone into the creation of each particular ego. Right, right. It generally operates like that. And then there's moments when we experience something beyond the ego, where in a sense there's an opening in the ego structure, the conditioning or something, and some other whole experience pops in. Mm -hmm. But generally, like you said, we're kind of, you know, operating inside of that all the time. And that's what the path is for to open that up and for us to begin to see beyond that or to experience beyond that. And also to recognize that, because I think many of us have those experiences, but we don't recognize what they are, and they quickly get, or we can quickly get distracted from them without even having a sense of what they are, so we don't value them or don't realize. Right, that's, that's a really good point, yeah for sure. And one of the things that happens, I think, in 
meditation over some years and maybe requires, you know, a, a good mentor or something unless the person just innately comes to this. But we begin to be able to discern when we're in ego consciousness and when we're not, mm-hmm. going exactly to your point. Mm-hmm. So we begin to learn, and the first step of the Love on Every Breath practice goes into this a lot about resting in awareness itself. So we begin to learn to, instead of resting like we normally do all the time in our ego consciousness, to rest in consciousness itself or awareness itself that is much more objective in the sense of non-biased and without preference and is much more open and has more clarity. And that is the doorway then to actually experiencing our true nature. And sometimes it can be, you know, mixed. It's not always so black and white. But, you know, as we begin to discern that more, we can begin to make conscious choices to rest in awareness itself. Yes. Yes. And rather than our patterns, like we can see, wow, that person just said something to me. I'm thrown into my ego consciousness. I'm thrown into my reactive patterns. Can I step back for a moment, drop, you know, kind of let go of all this in the moment and just step back into awareness and be present with all this without being, you know, without having to react. And that's sort of an in-between stage or or a more inclusive stage where we're engaged in ego consciousness, but we're also able to completely see through it or not be triggered by it. Yeah, right. I think we can learn to be present with it, to see it, to feel it, and not be fully identified. Right, not be ruled by it. Right, right, right. Whereas we can also have an experience where we're fully conscious, but no longer seeing through the filter of a separate eye at all. You mean when the experience of the separate eye drops away? Right. It drops away, and yet it's still just a very simple, organic, visceral experience. Nothing Mm. magical or mystical about it. Right. I think that's why in the Kagyu lineage they call the realization ordinary mind in Tibetan Tamagi Shepa, that mm-hmm. realized mind is ordinary mind. Mm-hmm. It already is here, and there's an ordinariness to the whole thing. And we have a body, and go to the bathroom, and have to eat food, and take a walk, and, you know. <laughs> right, we have certain responsibilities while we have a body in this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Namely, to take care of ourselves, take care of our body for as long as we have it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I think we have different motivations or goals, which is very beautiful, but, you know, I'm sure many people listening want to bring something into this world, their creative work, or they want to meet what's happening in the world with action and love and make a difference and all of these things, and this is a way we take care, too, not only of ourselves, but of all of humanity, of all the animals, of nature, of our societies and our interactions and all of this. And even the the whole universe. Yeah, yeah. Well, to extend an attitude of appreciation and love 
for this beautiful manifestation, this incredible environment that we find ourselves in that's actually completely amazing and mind-blowing when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting, mysterious paradox, this notion that we are totally unique individuals, and yet at the same time, we're not separate from everything around us. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You know, what we're talking about in different ways is this teaching in Buddhism that truth is beyond the polarities, and that both of those are true. We're not separate from all that is, and we're unique individual beings simultaneously. And that, again, the intellectual mind can't necessarily ever understand this. It comes through deep insight that comes from actually meditating and looking more directly into our experience. Right. Opening ourselves to the direct experience, mm-hmm. removing those those layers of intellectual ideas and concepts. Right. And, you know, concepts can be very, very helpful, but at the same time, we have to know their usefulness. We have to know their limitations and when to let go of them. Mm-hmm and not to attach to them. It's considered an obstacle in Buddhism if we attach too strongly to our concepts. Right. That gets in the way of the direct experience, our felt, lived, actual experience, if we attach too much to our concepts. Which, maybe we could talk about an example here. Say I'm going to a foreign country, maybe Africa is a kind of stark example. And say I have a concept that Africa is a very scary place, that there's a lot of violence, that people are scary or something, that I need to watch out for them, you know, or they might do something to me. And if I have that concept and I go there, then I'm not going to probably connect with the people there in a loving, open-hearted way and actually find out how they are, because my concepts are going to prevent that from happening. If I don't have fixation on my concepts and I go to Africa and I'm just open to the people there, open to a new experience, I'll meet people and see, and, you know, probably 80% of the people I meet will be great and loving, and maybe I'll meet a few that aren't the nicest people or something, but, you know, just humanity in general, or maybe everybody I meet will be wonderful and kind and loving. But if I'm thinking something different and I'm operating out of fear or out of hatred, these people or something like that, then that is going to completely color my whole experience. Mm-hmm. And I won't have an actual objective experience of these people. Objective, again, in that sense of unbiased. Yeah, so that would be a very unfortunate use of what we have available to us. That's like using our imagination in a negative way. Right. Whereas you talked about how we can use things to like concepts to accomplish certain things or to help us understand certain things, but they only work up to a certain point, like the concept of using a vehicle to get to the other side. Mm. Once we get there, we let go. We leave that vehicle behind because it's no longer useful. Mm -hmm. Right, right, yes. But that can be so hard to do because we become attached to the things that we have experienced useful experience with and think that, oh, well, if it worked once, I better hold on to it and keep using it. 
Right. And this is sort of the other side of what you were saying about when we don't recognize spiritual experiences, so we don't pay enough attention to them and actually try to integrate them. This is the other side where we cling maybe to spiritual experiences and try to recreate it. And again, Dingo Kinsey said that to try to recreate meditation or spiritual experiences is to betray the spontaneity of the present moment. Mm. And I love that. Uh I love that. I think it's a beautiful, you know, teaching. That's so profound because the nature of reality at one level is that there's continual change. And if we get stuck on anything, we actually put up a barrier to being able to stay open to that continual change and spontaneity. And that everything is completely fresh in each and every moment. And so to open to the freshness, the aliveness, the present, you know, in each and every moment in completely new what new, you know, instead of, again, putting our concepts of what was onto the present moment, allowing for possibility. Shifting our relationship to things so that we can let go of our clinging to it, but we can still meet reality or meet things, meet our lives with love, meet others, meet our experience with love. Right. We can integrate our past lessons and past experiences in a way that they don't get in the way of our present experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is an element of walking that razor's edge of staying fresh in the moment. It is. It is. And not, you know, discarding things, but not holding them too tightly. And that's why this idea of the middle path has been so emphasized in Buddhism. The the middle path sometimes really feels like a razor's edge, you know, between this and that. But it's learning to walk the path between what they call the extremes of thinking things completely, totally, truly exist or that they don't exist at all. And those are seen as the two extremes, and we need to walk the path between the two, but neither of those are really what the case is. Yes, and I vaguely remember that you presented a beautiful way of of saying that in the book, which I, I don't remember at the moment. I can't remember either. I think it's in the second chapter when I talk about all this the chapter on awakening Buddha nature and our subtle body. The second chapter of the book lays out the philosophical underpinnings of this meditation practice because I felt like it was important for people to understand the deeper ground, the philosophical ground that is the basis of these meditation practices and the way to understand them on a deeper level and to understand how they help connect us to our own awakened nature, which is really the crucial point for us to recognize our basic fundamental goodness and our own innate awakened nature, and then be able to cultivate that and allow that to grow and allow that to help us work through our human issues, our human challenges, and to you know, integrate on the path. And there are many ways to approach that. There are many practices that can help us get there. And let's get into Tonglen. And 
what Tonglen meditation is, and also how this particular love on every breath Tonglen, or also is known as extraordinary Tonglen, how it's different from the common form of Tonglen that, that most people have come across. Yeah, that's widely taught. Well, in many ways it's very similar, but then there's a very big difference in this practice of Tonglen. And primarily in the regular Tonglen that's usually taught by all the different Tibetan lineages, it's your ordinary self and breathing in the suffering of another human being or being and having that transformed through love in the heart and sending that love and healing energy out to the other person. A lot of times in the West, people find this very hard to do because they feel like they already have taken in so much suffering and they're drowning in their own and other people's suffering already, so they don't want to take in more. And actually, this is one of the good points that actually points to why to do this practice, because unconsciously, we're taking in suffering all the time and feeling, you know, our own suffering, whether we're aware of it or not. Of course, at different times, we're, you know, feeling it strongly or we're not having that experience so much. But we're taking in suffering, and this practice gives us a way to actually transform that and to send that energy back out into the world as love and compassion and wisdom. And so in this practice, instead of the ordinary self doing this praise to Chen Rezi, or if you want to use somebody else like Jesus or Muhammad or somebody, so, you know, I'll just explain it in the Buddhist terms, to Chen Rezi, the Bodhisattva of compassion, that our innate compassion will be fully opened. And then Chenrezi dissolves into us and we think, oh, I'm inseparable with the Bodhisattva of compassion, with awakened wisdom, love, and compassion. And that is then imagined as a Vajra, crystal Vajra, or a, a sphere, a brilliant light, if people are unfamiliar with the Vajra. I have a picture of it, a drawing of a Vajra in the book. So traditionally then, that indestructible, awakened nature of love and wisdom is felt and seen as this crystal vajra of light in the heart center, or as I was saying, as a sphere of bright light, if that's hard for the person. And then that is what transforms the suffering, this awakened love. And so then as the suffering comes in, it's instantly transformed by meeting with boundless awaken love into love and healing energy and is sent back out into the person that you're working with, that you're imagining in front of you as healing, as white light that is healing and transformative and ultimately liberating. The Vajra is symbolic of our awakened, indestructible, pure nature, true nature, and the nature of all that is, but it's also an embodiment of that it is that, so that one feels it's not just symbolizing that, it's manifesting that. So that's what we need to focus on, and then that is what does the transformation. And ultimately, this is the true nature of ourselves and of all that is, that is able to transform this. It's the awakened nature itself. Perhaps you could lead us through the steps of this Love on Every Breath Tonglen Meditation. 
Okay, sounds good. So the first step is resting in open awareness and just, in a sense, letting go of all of our busy thoughts and busy mind and letting go of all of our concerns and learning to just rest in meditation in open awareness. And then the next step, which I'm calling Seeking Refuge in Awakened Sanctuary, is calling upon the awakened or divine beings in the Buddhist sense, on all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, our own teachers, Chen Rezi, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, etc. Or it could be like the calling upon the Great Spirit from a more Native American point of view. Or it could be for people who are non-religious calling on the spirit of true love, of real love and compassion. And so, say, using the Buddhist example, we call in the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and what they're doing is manifesting awakened wisdom, love, and mirroring our true nature to us. So, they're demonstrating, you know, that awakened nature that is who we truly are and mirroring that in us and giving us the sanctuary of that space of resting within being held in awakened mind, awakened presence. And this is a step because then they are with us through our meditation, supporting us and guiding us in a subtle sense. Then the next step, cultivating awakened mind, or as it's called in uh, Sanskrit, bodhicitta, is cultivating the altruistic wish for each and every being to be happy, to be at peace, to be liberated from suffering, and cultivating the wish that we ourselves want to help bring all beings into full liberation from suffering and into ultimate peace into ultimate connection with who they truly are, their true nature. And so cultivating that altruistic mind called awakened mind in the tradition. And then the step four is the one I was already talking about where we call upon Chen Rezi or another awakened being or presence and become recognize our non-duality with that being, become one with that being. And through all these series of steps, it helps bring us to a sense of awakened or divine presence inside of ourselves, particularly in the heart center. So that is called stepping into love. And then step five is the taking and sending for oneself. So imagining oneself in front of you and then yourself actually where you're sitting as the awakened being as Shen Rezi, this vehicle of love and compassion or in whatever form works for you. The main thing is, is like this sense of anchoring, awakened love and compassion in our heart and being a vehicle for that. And from the point of view at this point, it's a process that helps us do what you and I talked about earlier, which is shift from ego consciousness into pure awareness. And then extend compassion and loving kindness and do this transformational process on the breath of breathing in the suffering and it's transformed and breathed out as awakened love. So we do that then in step five for ourselves and work through our own issues about that, our unworthiness and etc. And then in step six, we do this taking and sending, which is the translation of the word Tonglen from Tibetan. 
we do it for others, and we start with somebody we love and other loved ones. We branch out to friends and then acquaintances, and gradually we branch this out until we can even work with those people that are very challenging or difficult for us, and I give some guidance on how to approach that. And so that eventually we come to a place of being able to extend our love and compassion toward all sentient beings. And at the end of doing the taking and sending process, whether we're doing it for one person or more than one person, we imagine that person fully healed, awakened, illuminated, and eventually, if we're doing a full and complete meditation, we imagine all beings awakened, or we could just imagine that person. And then the people we're meditating on, as well as ourselves, as this vehicle of love, all dissolve into space, and we just, again, rest in awareness. And whatever love has been cultivated is there in a non-conceptual, open way without subject-object. And at that point in the dissolving step, at step seven, we let go of the sense of self and other and form and everything and just rest in formless awareness. And then step eight, we dedicate any benefit that's come from this meditation to the liberation for ourselves and all sentient beings of all suffering and all ignorance. And so that's, that's the practice in a nutshell. If you're just joining us, my guest is Lama Paul Dendrolma. She's the author of this book we've been talking about, Love on Every Breath, Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. You also offer an on-the-spot version for when we're in kind of sticky situations that we need to apply in the moment. Yes, yes. And Kala Rimshi also gave us these two alternatives. And so I'm really happy about the on-the-spot practice that the essentials of that were taught to me and, and I've used. And it's kind of hard to do unless we have some familiarity with the meditation. But once we have a familiarity with the meditation, then in an instant, any of these steps can be done anywhere at any time, like simply cultivating the wish that all beings are freed from ignorance and suffering. And just in any moment, cultivating that wish or saying, through my activities today, may it lead to the liberation of all sentient beings. Or in a moment when we see someone suffering, maybe on the street or on the freeway, there's an accident or something, and we all of a sudden do this taking and sending and send love and take in the suffering, transmute it, and send the love back to somebody that is hurt in an accident or whatever's going on, something we hear in the news, and we want to do an instant on-the-spot taking and sending. So each of these steps can be done in an instant on-the-spot in daily life. And this is a very powerful way to work with our experience and liberating and opening our own hearts and our own wisdom and our own love. Mm-hmm. I agree. I've, I've definitely experienced that myself. I learned the basic form of Tonglen meditation about 15 years ago. And then I learned 
a powerful walking meditation, and I ended up combining the two in a way that, that had a really powerful effect in my life. Mm, nice, nice. And you talk about, you know, once you've been doing Tonglen meditation for a while that you may naturally find ways to make the meditation your own in some unique way. Yeah. So there, again, is a fine line between making it our own, and I give a lot of suggestions for adapt, and doing an entirely different thing that isn't Tonglen. You know, so again, it's that fine line between adapting it, but actually still continuing to do that particular meditation and doing a whole different meditation, you know, which we can also just create our own meditations and do it. But when it's a transmitted meditation that's been done for, you know, over a thousand years or something, you know, there's an inherent wisdom in that also. And so we don't want to lose that either in adapting it for ourselves. Right. And we certainly don't want to lose the core or the essence of the meditation. Yes. And you talk about how through each of these steps of the meditation, there there are various challenges that can arise within us. And you tell some wonderful stories in the book. I would love for you to tell a story or two about, for example, there's, there's one story you tell about this woman named Linda who was dying of ALS. Yes, yes. So Linda was somebody that got in touch with me and asked if I would come see her and be with her, like give her personal sessions as she was dying. And so I went to see her, and as you said, she was dying of ALS. This person was local to where I live, and so had heard about me, and I went over there, and she had been a therapist, but now she was not completely paralyzed yet, but she was on her way to that, and she was more or less confined to the bed. And before she died, she had one concern, and that was about her granddaughter. Her son was the father, and then there was the mother, and apparently both of them had trouble with drugs and drug addiction and had lost custody of the child, and the child at this point was about six or seven, and so there was going to be a court hearing to decide where the child would be placed. She'd been in foster homes and stuff. But this was to be like kind of a final placement decision by the court. And so Linda was really concerned about the outcome for a granddaughter and trying to really, she wanted to do whatever she could, which was very limited because she was confined to her bed. So I suggested that we do this meditation practice, this love on every breath. And we began to do it for the granddaughter and then for the other people involved, for the parents. And I'd see her every week for a couple months. Then we started doing it for imagining the whole courtroom, the judge, the attorneys, both sides, everybody in the courtroom. We did the love on every breath for everybody. And then she would continue and do that in a shorter, longer version as she had energy in between seeing me. And we were doing this really as a prayer to have the best possible outcome happen for the granddaughter. And also to just give her some feeling of agency that she could actually do something positive to help her granddaughter because she could do nothing physically. So this gave her a way, which this meditation does, a feeling that you can actually do something and contribute somehow. And 
you know, primarily the Tonglen is about transforming and liberating our own hearts, but at the same time, you know, we can really pray that it has some kind of effect. So sometimes that can happen. And so we were doing the meditation. She continued to do it. And then the court hearing date came up, and we did the full meditation, imagining the whole court and all the beings there. And then the next week I came back, and she was so delighted because something really surprising had happened at the court hearing because there really wasn't a suitable outcome that anybody had proposed that was going to be that good for the granddaughter. This is why she was so worried. So all of a sudden during the hearing, a woman came forward that had been a foster parent of the granddaughter at one point, and the circumstances had changed, and she and her husband were willing to adopt the granddaughter and take her full time. And it had been a situation that this little girl had been very happy and that was a positive family situation that had been only a foster. And for some reason, this hadn't really been considered as an option, but this woman came forward. And so that was ultimately what was decided. And it was very out of the blue. And so Linda was thrilled with this outcome. And of course, we had no idea if our meditation had anything at all to do with this. But it was a very delightful outcome. And there's something about feeling that you can do something on the inner plane, whether or not you can do anything externally, that is very empowering and transformative. And somehow by all that love that was generated, then maybe that did help have, you know, a positive outcome Mm -hmm. for the child. In a sort of a more simple sense, Using this practice, say, for example, if we're in an argument or we're having a difficulty with somebody in our lives that we actually interact with very frequently or is somebody that we're close with but we're having a difficulty in our relationship, if we do the love on every breath, oftentimes it's like we let go of our end of the rope that is holding up the argument or the difficulty and we open into a whole fresh new space and oftentimes the other person then is able to show up in relationship to us in a different way. Like we're not holding what we were holding, you know, onto the person and in the situation. And by us letting go and opening to viewing this person in a different way, a lot of times the whole relationship can shift into a much more positive direction. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing and wonderful how that can happen. And you open the book with a wonderful quote from Rabbi David Cooper. And he says, at the core of hope is a leap of faith, not that it'll all come out right, but a faith that holds that what we do matters, how it will come to matter, who it will come to inspire, what positive effect it may have, is not ours to know. Yes. It's so beautiful and inspiring. And that has that element that we were talking about earlier of letting go. Yeah, we can't know what's going to happen, the result of all of our actions and, you know, of our good heart. Right. Doing the most that we can do, doing what has meaning for us, but not being attached to an outcome. Right. 
And then at the end of our lives, we've lived our lives with love. I think we can feel very much um, at peace and in a good place inside ourselves because like you mentioned earlier, then when we're extending love, you know, we feel that love, it's alive in us. And that is then very fulfilling for us. Mm -hmm. And it's such a powerful experience to uh, get back to the practice that I added to the Tonglen that I learned. I had learned a practice where on the out-breath during a walking meditation, just projecting out energy. And I chose to use love and joy together and project mm-hmm. that out. And so mm-hmm. in the practice, I would be like on a forceful out-breath just to give it power, additional power, mm-hmm. sending out love and joy to every body and everything that I encountered along mm-hmm. the way. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yes. And over time, that just has an incredibly transforming effect internally. Right, right. And I think that's something that's important for readers and listeners, that these practices, it seems like flightful imagination in a sense, but over time, the actual experience becomes very powerful and felt. Yes. And that was the essence of the practice, was this visceral feeling of doing this. And after a while, as you said, it really becomes deeply, deeply felt, the the actual quality Mm -hmm. of that love. And it's no longer just sending it out. It's not a willy-nilly thing. After a while, come to realize that we're sending it out into this open field that we are inextricably a part of. Right, right. Dalai Lama's talked about that, and he said he always just sends out loving kindness in front of himself wherever he goes, and he said that, you know, he just sends that out into the field, and he said he often then interestingly encounters love and compassion back as part of that whole process. Mm-hmm. There was a Thich Nhat Hanh poem on interdependence. Oh, right. Call Me By My True Names. Yes. Yeah, and Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, is not a Tibetan Buddhist. He's Mahayana Buddhist from Vietnam. And, you know, it shows this essential nature of Buddhism that goes through all the schools and lineages, this fundamental understanding that we are not separate. We are each each other's face in the sense that we are the totality as well as the individual. You know, and of course there's individual responsibility, but at the same time, there's this way that we reflect each other, you know, back to each other. And it's very powerful to not split ourselves off from others, you know, and to realize, okay, maybe I've learned that it's not the right thing to harm others intentionally, but, you know, there's maybe still a part of us that acts out and harms others unintentionally. And, you know, we all have both the pure awaken qualities, and we all go off the track and act out in ways that isn't that good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of us. (laughs) Yeah, and that's part of our human journey, you know, is to find our way through that. Mm -hmm. Right, and continue to find compassion and acceptance, including all of our flaws and mistakes. Right, Mm -hmm. right. To be able to see our beauty and our primordial goodness 
in spite of our imperfection. And I really don't feel that the spiritual path is about learning to be a perfect person. That's actually kind of an ego project. You know, on the spiritual path, it's more about uncovering who we truly are, that innate primordial goodness. And over time, allowing that step-by-step to help integrate into our moment-to-moment daily experience. So that we're not acting out of, you know, habitual harmful patterns. Right. Tell us about the work that you do and your website. Sure. So my website is lamapaldon.org, and also there's a page about the book and about my spiritual coaching and counseling practice, and there's a link on the About page to the Buddhist Center I founded in the San Francisco Bay Area about 20-plus years ago and what's going on there, and I think that's it. And the, the book's available wherever books are sold, and I really appreciate talking with you today, Tonya. It's been a really profound pleasure to be able to have such an in-depth discussion on the book and on these topics. Mm. Thank you so much for all of your time. I've enjoyed this immensely. Wonderful, yeah. It was really good to speak with you. That was Lama Paldendroma. Lama Paldendroma is one of the first Western women to become a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She's also a licensed psychotherapist facilitating clients with psycho-spiritual integration and development through the understanding and methods from Buddhism and psychology. And she's the author of this new book, Love on Every Breath, Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. And her website is lamapaldon.org.
through meditation, I program my heart to beat break beats and hum bass lines on exhalation. I burn seven-day candles that melt into 12-inch circles on my mantle and spin funk like myrrh. And I can fade worlds in and out with my mixing patterns, letting the earth spin as I blend in Saturn. Niggas be like spinning windmills, braiding hair, locking, popping, as a sonic force of the soul keeps the planets rocking. The beat don't stop when soulless matter flows into the cosmos, trying to be stars. The beat don't stop when Earth sends out satellites to spy on Saturnites and control Mars. Cause niggas got a peace treaty with Martians, and we be keeping them up to date through sacred gibberish like show enough, and it's on. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. The beat goes... And I roam through the streets of downtown Venus, trying to auction off monuments of Osiris's severed penis, but they don't want no penis in Venus for androgynous cosmology sets their spirits free. And they neither men nor women be, but they be down with the billion niggas who have yet to see that interplanetary truth is androgynous. And they be sending us shout-outs who shooting stars, and niggas be like, what up? And talking Mars, because we are solar, and regardless of how far we roam from home, the universe remains our center, like, oh. I am no earthling. I drink moonshine on Mars and mistake meteors for stars as I can't hold my liquor, but I can hold my breath and ascend like wind of the black hole and play galaxophones on the fire escapes of your soul, blowing tunes to lunar wombs, impregnating stars, giving birth to suns that darken the skins that skin our drums, and we be beating infinity over sacred hums, spinning funk like myrrh until Jesus comes, and Jesus comes every time he drum, and the moon drips blood and eclipses the sun, and out of darkness comes a poof, poof, and out of darkness comes a poof, poof, poof. And out of darkness comes a... said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road, and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on that bank or resting? There is no river at all, and no boat, and no boatman. There is no tow rope either, and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. And there is no body and no mind. 
Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. For more information, check out wgdr.org. Thank you.